You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, January 30th, 2022 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. Well, it's good to see you guys. For those of you that are guests with us, my name is Robert. I am one of the pastors here, and I get the privilege this morning as we read and teach from God's Word. And, and this morning, I, I want to spend um, one more week uh, considering kind of a big idea that we've been thinking about really since the, the Advent season before Christmas, but uh, the big idea of our spiritual formation. Uh, we've been considering it from a number of different angles, really, ever since December, just taking a few weeks off. And my aim has been to continually and repetitively, uh, if you haven't noticed it, uh, put in front of you the reality that our souls are always being shaped and formed. That is a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week reality. And the fact of the matter is we pay less attention to that reality than we really want to admit. And because of it, uh, we're paying a price at the level of our soul and heart. Uh, The impact of the formation that's taking place in the world in which we live is leaving many of us feeling very chaotic at heart and soul, hurried busied, distracted, even on the best days, recognizing that many of our priorities in life are misplaced and misaligned, but yet feeling too chaotic and disordered at heart and soul to really think about it and do much about it. And in the midst of this reality of formation and the various forces in the world around us that are seeking to shape and form how we view ourselves and the world in which we live in, we've been considering Jesus' very clear and very gracious call to a counter-formation of sorts. It's no less a formation of heart and soul, but it stands in contrast and counter to all of the other voices and forces and realities that are seeking to shape and form us. It's a call to a counter-formation of soul. It's his call to become his disciple or his apprentice, to abide with him, to learn to make our settled home, so to speak, in heart in him, to prioritize keeping company with him, to be with him, to learn from him. And when we talk about learning from him, we're not just talking about learning propositional truth from Jesus. We're not just talking about orthodoxy and doctrine. We're talking about learning from Him His way of being, His way of living, learning from Him His unforced rhythms of grace, as we saw in Matthew chapter 11, His yoke that gives His disciples a way to recover their life, to learn to live free and unhurried. And so through the course of those weeks, we've considered a few of the 
unforced rhythms and priorities that marked Jesus' life, that were modeled for his disciples or his apprentices, that we then see lived out not only in them, but encouraged in the life of the church. We spent time talking about Jesus' priority and rhythm of, of solitude and being with the Father, solitude and silence with the Father. And what a tremendous thing it is for you and I, his disciples, his apprentices in our day and age, when we're so hurried and when we're so busy and when we're so chaotic of soul, to learn his unforced rhythm of grace and solitude for our souls to just begin to settle in the presence of God. Just begin like that jar of river water we talked about that you shake it, it's all the sediment spinning out everywhere, just letting it sit and letting it settle before the Lord and learning to hear his voice. And from there we considered the, the principle, the pattern, the, the rhythm in Jesus' life uh, of, the, of engaging with the scriptures in the life uh, of his own personal heart, in the life of his relationships with his disciples. And so last week, we spent a lot of time talking about what it is to learn to listen for the voice of the Lord as we engage his scriptures. How to begin to learn to sift through all the various voices in the world in which we live, vying for our attention and being able in stillness with him and engaging with his word to begin to hear his voice as his spirit begins to work through his word in our hearts, learning to listen to him. Over and against our tendency to come to his word to pick it apart, we're sitting ourselves under it and going to hear his voice through it. It's really kind of in a relational way of approaching Christ in his word. And we, we talked a bit about that last week. We spent a lot of time with that last week. And, and even before Christmas, we talked about the principle and the, and the rhythm and the priority in Jesus' life of, of gathering together with God's people on a weekly basis to hear from God's word together, to encourage one another in God's word, to worship together, to pray together. And we, we talked about the priority in Jesus' life that would have been part of his disciples' life and modeled for them and they would have experienced with him in the weekly gathering of the local church. And for you and I, again, living in a world that is constantly trying to re-narrate our understanding of who we are and what the picture and the vision of the good and abundant life looks like, how great is it that we get to, like Jesus has encouraged, come together as his people every week. And as we're gathered together and we hear his word read, we pray his word together, we sing songs of praise and thanksgiving to him, we confess our sins together, we're reminded of his assurance and his pardon, and we hear from his word and we respond together to his word. He is working in us to continually, weekly, re-narrate and groove our understanding of who he is and who we are in light of his grace. And so we've been thinking about some of these rhythms of Jesus' life, these unforced rhythms of grace, and what it might look like for us to follow him and learn from him in such a way to make his rhythms our rhythms, his priorities our priorities. And so this morning, I want us to consider one more priority of Jesus's that would have been experienced by his disciples and and then lived out by them after his ascension. And we see them encouraging them in the life of God's people through their writings that we now have in the New Testament. So it's a priority of Jesus's that you and I are called to embody right now in the 21st century. And we're called to embody it in the midst of a very present culture that is very much intoxicated by what sociologists and philosophers call it an age of cultural and individual expressionism. 
philosophers talk about expressive individualism as something that absolutely marks the day in which we live. You may have heard of a guy named Carl Truman. He's a theologian and he's a professor. He wrote a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And he defines this air and and this age that we live in of expressive individualism this way. This thought and reality holds that human beings are defined by their individual psychological core and that the purpose of life is to allow that core to find its own social expression. Anything that you would do to restrict someone's individual psychological core from finding its own expression is oppressive. So you do you. That becomes the highest good. Expressive individualism. Finding ways to relate to the world in which we live, other people and the everyday realities of life in such a way that the highest good is being able to express my own psychological core. How this begins to impact the way we live is the purpose of Truman's book. And, and just to give you an example, so lest you think this is kind of some esoteric reality, uh, he begins to give the example of how his grandfather would have approached his everyday work, his everyday vocation, in, in light of his generation and his understanding, in contrast to how Carl Truman, who's just over 50, so we're in the same generation, Generation X, how he begins to approach it. He said his father, again, Truman's from the United Kingdom, Um, His grandfather uh, finished school at the age of 15, spent the rest of his life working in a sheet metal factory in Birmingham, England. And he said, if you were to ask his grandfather, are you satisfied with your job? His grandfather wouldn't have known how to answer the question. It wouldn't have even made sense to him. He said, I could imagine if someone asked my grandfather, are you satisfied with your job? He would have said this, well... I'm serving my community and I'm putting shoes on the feet of my children and I'm putting food on the table. So yeah, I guess I'm satisfied with my job. See, Truman's argument will go on to say that his grandfather's whole perception of the focus of his work was not inwardly directed. He he wasn't thinking in terms of his personal feelings of satisfaction. But Truman was honest. He said, you asked me the same question. Are you satisfied with your job? He's a professor, he's a writer. He would say, I would think about the feeling that I get when I'm standing in front of a a room full of students. When I'm teaching them something and communicating something and the energy that I feel in that moment, I would think about that and I would go, yeah, I guess I'm satisfied being a teacher. It's an entirely different way of even understanding how they're relating with their everyday vocation. Truman begins to look directly at his own internal experience and how he feels emotionally on a day-to-day basis as to whether or not his vocation is bringing him satisfaction. And so the book goes on to argue that traditionally, various cultures around the world, up until the the rise of the mid-modern day, viewed institutions like churches as places where relationships were built where souls were formed and lives were formed and life was lived in an understanding of the standards and the forming impacts of those institutions where now, in an age dominated by expressive individualism, institutions like churches or schools are no longer places of formation, but they're places for you and I to perform. 
They're no longer places where we are formed. They're platforms on which we perform so that we can express our individualism. This is the, the air that you and I breathe on a day-in and day-out basis. We've become absolutely self-oriented in reference. Individualism still rules the day. Now, you take that reality and you throw in a couple of years of fairly intense relational distancing, isolation, social division, fairly extreme fear, put that stuff in a blender and you've got quite the cocktail of a self-oriented experience. Welcome to 2022. We've all been sipping on this thing to greater and lesser degrees. And so this morning, as we, as we consider just one more of many, and we'll come back to this later in the spring, but we'll stop on this one. We consider one more priority in the life of Jesus that we see modeled in his ministry, we see lived out through his disciples in the writings of the New Testament. I want us to consider in Jesus' life, in, in his ministry, and then through his disciples, the priority of people, the priority of others, the priority of relationships. And in particular, here's what I want us to spend some time looking at in just a few minutes. I want us to consider some of the qualities that we see modeled and displayed in Jesus's relationships with his disciples that are then modeled and displayed in the life of his disciples with the churches and encouraged in the letters they write to the churches for you and I. Not so much the idea of the relationships, but what are the qualities? What might they look like? And so we're going to talk about relationship, and for some of you, we're going to talk about community, and it's a super hot topic, and there's no way on God's good green earth that I'm going to come anywhere close to being comprehensive about that idea, all right? So whatever I don't say you wish I said, well, know that I wish you wish I said it too, so don't worry about it, all right? But this is a priority in the life of Jesus that he modeled for his disciples, that his disciples compelled in the churches, that pushes directly back against the expressive, vaulted individualism of our day. There are qualities that were there, qualities that you and I have to learn, qualities that you and I then have to learn how to put into practice. And so I want to look at them in what we have of the record of Jesus' relationships with his disciples, but you'll probably see more of it in the, in the encouragement that his disciples give to the churches because it was something they experienced in their relationships with Jesus. That's how it works. But before we jump into the qualities, we're, we're going to start at like a 50,000-foot view, if that's okay. And the 50,000-foot view we just have to get our heads around is that Jesus was very clear that being his apprentice was not an act of expressive individualism. Being his apprentice was not the arena for expressive individualism. Being his apprentice wasn't something that was left for you and I to do alone. Now, I want you to listen to Jesus here in John chapter 13. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you. All right, that, Jesus just said, a new commandment I give to you, all right? So fairly important thing that's about to be said, right? Jesus, a new commandment I'm giving you, okay? That you love one another 
Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So in Jesus' commandment that he gives to his disciples, to his apprentices, he is presupposing something about us. He's presupposing that there is an us, right? For us to love one another, and that's a huge phrase and huge reality, it presupposes a one another. It presupposes an us. It presupposes a relationship. Now, Jesus says that this is a new command that he's giving, and in some sense, it's not new, They were commanded in the Old Testament to love their neighbor as themselves, but it's new in the sense that now, because of Jesus, he is now the pattern we live by and the power that we live on. He is the power that we live by and the power that we live on. Not only that, he is the pattern. His love and his relationship is the pattern that begins to shape the way that you and I love and relate to one another. He actually said in, later on in that same section in John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So Jesus begins to set the pattern by which you and I understand what it is to love one another. And then as we abide in him as his disciples, his spirit alive and at work in us, it's he that enables us to actually love the way that he calls us to love in the way that he loved us. This is his understanding. Now, having been with Jesus for a number of years very intensely, Peter would later write to the church in 1 Peter chapter 1, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, through the living and abiding word of God. Peter reminds the church that a genuine mark, a real mark of genuine conversion, faith and repentance in Jesus is this kind of love for one another. Earnest love. John, who was there with Peter, who was with Jesus for those years, experiencing this in relationship to Jesus and one another, would later write, this is how we know we've passed from death into life, that we love one another. But Peter wasn't done. It's such a big deal, because it must have been such a massive deal in Jesus' time with his disciples. I mean, we get the very distinct phrases they record in the Gospels of Jesus commanding them to love as he has loved them. But you have to imagine day in and day out for three years how much this was modeled and talked and talked about and taught. Peter comes back in that same letter in 1 Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, and he says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Verse 8, above all, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Diligently is how you could translate that. Constantly in its present tense. Above all else, keep loving one another earnestly. Just like the commandment that Jesus gave them, it presupposes a them. It presupposes an us It presupposes a one another. It presupposes a relationship amongst God's people. 
Keep loving one another earnestly, Peter said, since love covers a multitude of sins. Peter's not saying that this earnest love amongst God's people covers up what needs to be exposed. No, he's, he's saying this kind of love is a kind of love that's capable of overlooking 10,000 minor experiences, minor offenses. It's a kind of love that grows very hard to be offended by. It's a kind of love that grows very quick to forgive. It's a kind of love, as it grows, it creates very little space for grudges and bitterness to be harbored. See, this is what Peter and the rest of the disciples experienced in their relationship to Jesus. There are qualities that put flesh on this command to love. It's a massive phrase if you really think about it. Like what it means to love one another. It's a huge phrase. So you've got to kind of begin to dig a little bit and pull back a little bit. And like, what are some qualities of this love that actually look tangible, that actually can be experienced, that actually can be understood, that actually can be present, that actually can be practiced, that actually can be tasted and experienced? Well, we see them in the relationship Jesus has with his disciples and in what his disciples then say to the church. These qualities are there, and I want us to explore some of them. But before we do, I'm going to hold out on you just for a second. There are a couple of warnings I think we need to heed. A couple of warnings as we begin talking about the relationships and the quality of the relationships and the, the characteristics present in our relationships amongst one another as God's people. And the first warning comes from a, a guy some of you may have, be familiar with. His name's Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer was a philosopher and and he said one of the problems with humanists, and when he says humanists, he's talking about those of us who have come to be taught and believed and shaped and formed by the world around us to believe in some measure that man, as the intelligent being, is going through his powers of, of intellect and comprehension to be able through, to overcome creation and to overcome the shortfalls of the world through better technology, better education, better medicine. Man is the measure of all things. That's what a humanist believes very short version. And we've all tasted that to some degree in how we understand ourselves. But Schaefer said one of the problems with this is that we tend to love humanity as a whole. Man with a capital M. Man as an idea. But we forget about man as an individual, as a person. Christianity is to be exactly the opposite. Christianity is to not love in abstraction, but to love the individual who stands before me in a person-to-person relationship. He must never be faceless to me or I'm denying everything I say I believe. This concept will involve cost. It's not cheap because we live in a fallen world and we ourselves are fallen. See, love can become such a, a concept, such an abstraction that we can very quickly convince ourselves that we love one another an abstraction, while on a day-in and day-out basis denying the very thing we've convinced ourselves we believe because we're not able to love one another face-to-face. And there are qualities that are present in these kinds of relationships that Jesus is talking about and now commanding that we can begin to see and begin to practice. We'll get there. The other warning, if Schaefer is going to help us try to beware of 
closing the gap in some sense between what we say we believe about loving people and what we actually do, Bonhoeffer is going to bring a warning for us that may be a little more at home for many of us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, the serious Christian when set down for the first time in a Christian community, and he just means in a relationship of people who are believing the same things about Jesus. He's not talking about a particular church's small group ministry. He's talking about community in the sense of God's people gathering together. So when a serious Christian is first set down in a Christian community, he's likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and try to realize it. Anybody want to raise their hand on being guilty on that one? No? You're all better than that? I do it, so I'll raise my hand. He's likely to bring with him his very definite idea of what it's supposed to be like. And then he's going to try to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Every human wish dream, I love that. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is going to survive. Now listen to him. He's going to get real pointed. He who loves his dream of a community or a relationship more than the Christian community or relationships themselves becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intention may be ever so honest, earnest, and skillful. So as we consider the relationships that Jesus modeled amongst God's people, the commandment to love one another that he has given, the way in which his disciples who were with him began to encourage the churches, and we now think about what it is to love one another, we've got to be very careful and honest about our own idealized wish dream expectations that we bring to one another. We have to be very honest and very clear about that, that we don't idealize our own expectation to the expense of the very people that God has given us. It's a very real danger. We all have particular expectations and ideals of God's people and God's church. And we're all guilty at times of elevating those ideals above the very people that God's given us. So we've got to be careful. All right? So warning's done. Let's just consider for a bit now, with the time we've got left, some of the qualities that we see modeled, on displayed, and encouraged in Jesus' relationship with his disciples and apprentices, and then encouraged through them to us. And as we do that, I, I just want you to wonder, maybe you've done this before and I'm late to the game, but have you ever really thought about the fact that Jesus, I mean, think about who we're talking about, that Jesus chose to model interdependent relationships with people like you and me? Like, I think we tend to skip over it sometimes. We get to the commands and we get to the things and we forget that Jesus chose to model for us interdependence with sinners like you and I. It's a crazy thing if you think about it. I mean, the record that we have of Jesus's life and ministry and the gospel accounts help us to see that at any point along the way, he never went alone in it. He always had knitted himself to a people. And it was a crazy bunch of people. At some time, think about the people that he surrounded himself with like a human for a minute, right? You've got a tax collector that he called to himself. An Israelite who was seen by the rest of his people as a traitor because he was working for the Roman government, 
collecting taxes against his people and profiteering from those taxes by elevating those taxes and taking what was required off the top. And then he called a zealot, one who was trained ideologically and physically with a knife for the overthrow of the Roman government. And then he gets some fishermen, some blue-collar guys, some guys who didn't go all the way through synagogue school. Right? They had learned and they had known, and then like the rest of the boys in their community, they went to work with their dads. They were hard workers. These are just part of the 12 that would become the apostles. He had more disciples. He had more apprentices. There were men, there were women, there were young, there were old, there were rich, there were poor. There were those who had been cast out by their communities because they were diseased, because they had a physical deformity, because their mind didn't work in the same way as everyone else and they presupposed it should. He had a crazy collection of people that were with him. It was absolutely ripe for catastrophe. But they experienced something from Jesus with Jesus and one another that was altogether different than what you and I would expect. And it was qualitatively different. Those are some, these are some of the qualities I want us to consider. The first one we won't spend much time on because we spent an entire week on it last week, but one of the key, if not the key qualities of, that you find in the relationships that Jesus had with his apprentices and his disciples that you see encouraged by them later to the churches are relationships that were saturated in the scriptures. I mean, you have to think about it again like a human. I mean, Jesus was a rabbi. He was a teacher. We talked last week about how his ministry was one of helping the people see the fullness of God in his scriptures, correcting misinterpretations of God's word, bringing a right interpretation, helping to open up people's eyes and hearts to see and to hear God in his scriptures. He did that publicly. He did that with religious leaders. He did it day in and day out with those that were with him. He was helping them to see God in the scriptures, helping them to see him in the scriptures. Their conversations were seasoned with the scriptures. Their, their walking was with the scriptures. Their eating was with the scriptures. It wasn't just those times that John records when he stands up and says, I am the true bread. I am the living water. I am the light. I am the true vine. Those are the only times that Jesus was helping people to see that all that had been written was pointing to him. It was every bit a part of his every day with those he was with. Their life together was saturated in the scriptures. This is one of the things of quality that marked their relationships. And we won't spend more time on it because we spent so much time on it last week. But as you begin to look at his relationships with his disciples, you also begin to see that Jesus was very generous with his emotions in the relations that he was with. He was very emotionally generous. Do you know what the most often common used adjective to describe the inner life and experience of Jesus with people is in the New Testament? We did a whole series on this in the very beginning of the COVID pandemic, but the most often used adjective to describe the experience of being with Jesus, defining something of him coming with people is that of compassion. Compassion. The word behind compassion simply means to feel with. 
That word is the same root that we get the word sympathetic from. So when the Bible talks about Jesus being a sympathetic high priest, he's a compassionate high priest. He's one who feels with people. That says a lot about what it would have been like to be with Jesus day in and day out. He was one who would feel with the people that he was present with. Jesus was present and engaged with the emotions of those that he surrounded himself with. Unlike you and I, he he wasn't ruled by those emotions, and he didn't ignore them either. Rather, Jesus modeled and demonstrated a generosity with his emotions. Story after story, you can find Jesus weeping with those who were weeping, rejoicing with those who were rejoicing. I I love, and I know you have to take some liberties with it, but I, I love the way that some have chosen to try to put this on display for us in, in, in film. And I love the, the Chosen TV series, if you've seen it. But in particular, when I think about this, I think back for those that may be aware of it, the, the movie, The Passion of the Christ. There were two moments in that movie, and I absolutely love it. My favorite parts of the movie, probably, that try to show this full range of Jesus's, not just humanity, but the generosity with his emotions, that he was human and with people. And one was when he played a trick on his mom. I don't know if you ever remember seeing the movie, but he snuck up on her and surprised her, and she hit him, and they laughed, and he hugged her, and he laughed. He laughed. He would grab his disciples the way that men in that region in that time would grab each other, hands behind each other's head, hold them close, bring them in, keep them near. There's a generosity to his being, to his emotions that he shared with those that he was with. So it's no surprise to come to the letters to the churches and find the encouragement for you and I to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep and to live in harmony with one another. Jesus wasn't simply just willing. He was ready to be generous with his emotions and the people that he was with. He was ready to feel glad with those who were glad. He was ready to weep with those who were weeping. He was ready to feel relief with those who were relieved, to lament with those who were lamenting. And so it stands to reason that as you and I become more and more like Jesus, our relationship should exhibit a kind of emotional generosity with each other. And understanding that that our emotions aren't just for me. Right? My emotions aren't just for me. They're for you. When you're going through the circumstances of your life that you're going through, my emotions are for you. And there's a generosity that we have with one another with regards to our emotions, right? And so it would make sense in an emotionally generous relationship like that amongst people, the give and the take and the presence and the connection that's there, you find in these relationships that Jesus created and modeled a tremendous safety, for people to be able to, as John will say, walk in the light. This safety promoted a confession and a repentance amongst sinful people. I mean, you can think about the interactions that Jesus would have in this way with the woman at the well, with Zacchaeus, but think about the interactions that would have occurred. I wish we had them recorded for us in the Gospels. One day, maybe in eternity, we'll get to hear them. I'd love to see Jesus and Peter over and over and over again. The safety Peter must have eventually felt to be honest and open with the shortcomings that were so readily present that all the writers like to help us see. 
There was an environment that was created where this kind of confession was encouraged. And a desire to live clean before God was present. A repentance was promoted. And some of the best evidence for the reality of this quality and the relationships amongst God's people that would have been seen and experienced and then encouraged through Jesus' apprentices and to the churches is in their writings, actually. So you get to places like James 5, right? Where James writes to the church and says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Right? All, all researchers are across the, the, the spectrum in, in, in Bible research, especially in dealing with James's letter, all agree that the healing James is talking about here is a spiritual healing, a cleansing of heart and soul, a healing and a cleansing that promotes the fruit of joy and freedom, the blessing of the gospel. And it comes here through confession to one another presupposing a relationship where this kind of confession and repentance is encouraged and promoted and safe. There's confession and ownership of sin to one another and then prayer for one another. See, James presupposes that in our relationships amongst one another, we all realize that we all have sin to confess. And we all realize we all have the ability in Jesus to pray righteous prayers for one another. Right? We have the ability in Jesus to pray righteous prayers for each other, not because we're sinless, but because by the grace of God, we're clothed in Jesus' righteousness. And as you and I pray in the confidence of Jesus' righteousness that we're clothed in him and we know the Father is listening because he's created access for us through himself, we can pray those prayers of righteous faith for one another as we're confessing sin to each other. And do you see that it's those that are confessing sin to one another are also the same sinners that are praying for one another? That's the gospel. That's the confidence we have in Jesus as we're with one another. But the reality of it is we all want this kind of healing, this kind of cleansing, this kind of experience of the gospel in a private way. I'm down with that kind of confession and promotion of repentance between me and God. But James helps us to see that God has put the relationships together in such a way that this kind of experience of the gospel comes as you and I are with one another in this kind of way. It's an amazing thing. But these relationships weren't just relationships where repentance can be promoted, confession can be had. They were relationships that where Jesus we see with his disciples and then his disciples from Jesus to the churches, there were relationships where faith and confidence in Jesus and the gospel was encouraged. Right? So many times when we think about our relationships like this with each other, we think about the promotion of repentance and what we tend to create with each other is this pseudo-confession booth where I feel better because I told you I was wrong. I told you I sinned. I feel better. I got it off my chest. But you get something off your chest so you can feel better. And then we drink coffee, have a breakfast, and we go off somewhere. But what we see constantly in the relationships that Jesus modeled with his disciples and we hear from his disciples then to the church over and over and over again is that these relationships are meant to encourage confidence in Jesus and the gospel. We're meant to encourage our faith and confidence in Jesus in one another's hearts. 
I mean, Jesus was always redirecting the eyes and the hearts of those who were with him back to the promises of God and back to himself. I mean, just think about the things he was saying, even in, Matthew's full of this. We don't have time to kind of go through all of it, but just think about Jesus' gentle redirection of people's hearts and people's focus when he looks at them and says, why are you so anxious? Look at the birds. They don't sow. They don't reap. They don't harvest. Yet God is always feeding them and taking care of them. Aren't you of more value to him than them? Over and over again, he's redirecting the eyes and the hearts of the people, his disciples, apprentices, confidence, and he's often putting them back to him. Again, it's not just those I am statements where Jesus kind of disclosed who he was over and over and over again. Jesus is helping those who are with him to see him in light of God's word, pointing them back to himself. And so as we come to the rest of the New Testament, the writings of those who had been with Jesus, who had experienced this with Jesus and one another, you shouldn't be surprised to find this same kind of quality present in the relationships that you and I are supposed to have within the church. So you get to Hebrews chapter 3, where the writer says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. He is reminding the church that we need one another to hold tight to our confidence in Jesus, lest we become hardened by the craftiness and deceitfulness of sin, because make no mistake, sin is crafty, and its craftiness is deceitful. In one ear, sin whispers to you constantly that it holds out more freedom and more pleasure than the ways and the commands of God. And the minute you take a bite of that thing, he's whispering in the other ear, now you've disappointed God too far. Now you've gone too far. He whispers in one ear, we're more fun, we're more free. And then he whispers right back in the other ear, you're too far gone for God's forgiveness. He's a crafty little thing. So Jesus' disciples and apprentices are constantly writing to the churches. We need one another to encourage one another in the confidence that we have in God's grace and forgiveness to us in Jesus. That because of Jesus, we're never beyond the grace of God. That you and I can, can so easily be hardened in heart by the deceitfulness of sin, but yet together our hearts can be softened by the goodness and grace of God in the gospel. And we need one another daily for this kind of encouragement because you and I face an onslaught of deceitfulness and temptation in the world in which we live. And we need each other. Same people who were confessing sin to one another and praying in confidence for one another are the same people now who are back encouraging one another in the confidence and the grace and glory of God they have in Christ. That's the relationship. Scripture saturation, emotionally generous, safe to confess, repentance promoting, quick to encourage confidence in Jesus. And the last one, mindfully provoking action. Mindfully provoking action. You see it most clearly, we stick in Hebrews, in Hebrews 10, 
when the writer continues on saying, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, listen to this gospel confidence and encouragement, right? Part of the relationship is the ongoing encouragement of one another's hearts in who Jesus is and continues to be for us. And he's saying, listen, since we have this confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, that he's made access by his sacrifice in our place for our sins, a new and living way he opened up through the curtain, no more separation between us and the presence of God. Jesus has made access to God by faith in him possible. And since we have such a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, hearts being sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and bodies washed with pure water. Man, be encouraged. He's not just made access possible for you with God. He's cleansed you. He's washed your soul. He's given you a new heart. He is at work, present now, by his spirit, changing you. This is that gospel encouragement and confidence, and he gives it to the church. And then he says, therefore, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Stir one another up, in the old King James is a better translation, it's to provoke. That's what the word means, it's to provoke. It's a holy provoking And it can't happen if your measure of the church and your measure of relationships with God's people is based on your own expressive individualism because you have to consider someone else to do this. And in order to consider someone else to do this, you have to understand them. That word consider, we would probably use the word study. You have to be so aware and present and connected with what someone that you're in this relationship with is experiencing, how they're experiencing the circumstances of their life, what their emotions are doing, where their weaknesses are, where they're failing to be confident in who God is for them, where there might be sin that need to be promoted and repentance that need to be had, but courage deposited into the heart so that they can be provoked to live out of that. You have to consider them. It can't be about you. It has to be about them. And as we consider them, present with them, generous with their emotions, willing to be with them in that at the same time, helping them to see where Jesus is with them in that, that there might be something they need to bring before him and confess, and we can encourage their hearts and who he is for them now, we get to provoke one another in that. How do we close the gap between what we are believing with our heart about Jesus and how we are actually living that out in our daily lives? That's what it means. To provoke each other to be more consistent in living out of the light that we confess with our mouths. That's what love and good works are. It's living in consistency with what we say we is that we actually believe. And it's massively important because Jesus says this is going to be one of the key ways that a watching world knows that you're mine. That you love one another this way, these qualities are present with each other, but they're going to begin to see you living in light of what it is you're believing and encourage each other in. So you and I get so caught up in this individualism of what I get from you for myself out of this thing, and I have some weird internal measurement and scales that I weigh it on a balance of and decide whether it's good or not, and we miss all along that God has wired this thing in such a way that as you and I learn these qualities of love and practice them together in relationship with one another, he's actually doing something beyond your heart and my heart. Not less than that, but more. It's his own means 
of causing a watching world to see something about him. It's not just about you. And we do it by not neglecting being with one another. This is the command of Jesus, that we love one another. And it's such a big concept. We begin to see that kind of love put on display in our relationships with one another, in the qualities that we find in the relationships that Jesus was modeling with his apprentices and disciples that they encourage the churches in. Relationships saturated in the scriptures. Relationships that are learning to be generous with their emotions. Relationships where it's be safe to be honest. And repentance is promoted. Where confidence in Jesus is encouraged and you and I are able to rightly provoke one another to live in light of what it is we believe. And so this morning, I just want to put that in front of all of us and then ask you the question, do you have relationships like this in your life? Where you are learning to love. Where the qualities that were present in the relationships that Jesus had with his disciples and that were encouraged by his disciples to the church are present in that relationship. If you do, praise God. But let me warn you, don't fool yourself either. Do you have these kind of qualities present in your relationships in the life of God's people? Friends, these qualities are something that have to be learned. They're qualities that have to be practiced. Just like last week when we talked about listening to Jesus in the scriptures from a relational perspective, we have to come to terms with the fact that what that looks like is unnatural to us at times. And there are steps in the process that we have to learn. And the more we learn them and the more we practice them, the more natural they become and the more rhythmic they become. It's the same way as we relate to one another like this. These qualities have to be learned. I don't inherently do any one of these things very well. And left to myself, I would probably do none of them because I'm a sinful human being who loves himself very much. So these are qualities that I have to learn. These are qualities I have confidence that I am learning and being transformed by because of the presence of God's spirit alive in me, but I have to learn them and then I have to practice them. The same thing is true for all of us. And, And so my encouragement this morning is for you to first just stop and reflect, are these qualities present in any relationship that you have within God's people? And if you want to begin to consider what practicing and learning these qualities might look like, I want to just encourage you. Last week, as we talked about the Seeing Jesus Journal, as a way to just begin to learn the steps, put the steps in practice so that the rhythm of learning to hear Jesus and be with Jesus becomes more natural and it kind of guides you through it. There's another tool in the journal. It's called Seeing Jesus with One Another. And it basically is everything I just said in 12 pages. And then kind of gives you a guide. How together with one or two other people, you can learn to see Jesus together and build these qualities of love in your relationships. For years, we've had things that we called 3Ds around here that were relationships kind of like this. We didn't give much structure or context to them, so they had varying degrees of fruitfulness and effectiveness. Here is a way that you can begin to learn the qualities of love that begin to be expressed in the relationships amongst God's people. If you grab one of the journals, it's in there. It's not the only way to do it. If you've got relationships amongst God's people where you say this is all happening, praise God, I love you. Maybe you can teach me how you do it. 
But I have to learn these things. And so if you're interested in learning those things, there's a whole thing that's in the journal. You know, a great place to start would be at home. If you're married, you, you have a spouse. Are these qualities of love present in your relationship with your spouse? Do you have a relationship where it's even safe in some sense spiritually to own your sin before one another and pray for one another in that? Great place to start is at home. Learning how to, how to build these qualities in your relationships that you have in your house. Outside of the house, guys, go find two other guys. Women, go find two other women. And commit to one another to learn how to express and experience these qualities of love with each other in relationship. This is what God expects, has modeled, and has empowered for his people by his spirit. And he intends for you and I to grow in the presence of his people. So this morning, I've gone long. You've been patient. I want us to prepare to respond to God's word this morning. And I want you to do it being reminded of this. A day is coming when these relationships will be fully and completely transformed. Right? This is part of the encouragement that we have to offer each other in life right now in a fallen world. The writer of Hebrews will go on to say, encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. All the more as we see the day of Jesus' return coming. When our faith, when all that we have clung to by faith will fully and finally be made sight. We remind each other that we are people who live in great hope. And this kind of great hope and great confidence brings great freedom. Freedom to love, freedom to sacrifice, because our eyes are set not on ourselves, not on our own expression, not on our own here and now, but our eyes are ultimately set on a full and future joy and glory. And we are free to be with one another in love the way that God has called us to. So just a moment, for those who have believed upon Jesus through repentance and faith, you'll be invited to come forward to take a piece of bread, remembering his body broken in your place for your sins. You'll dip it in a cup, remembering his blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And as you do it, you do it in the context of knowing that Jesus now, by his life, death, and resurrection, is the pattern that we love one another by. And he himself is the power that we live on in order to do it. Let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll continue. Father, we thank you this morning for the kindness that you have shown us in giving us one another. Sometimes it, we convince ourselves that we were better alone, we're, we're better apart, that we have within ourselves all that we need. Lord, help us to see more clearly that this is an idea, Lord, that runs contrary to the joy, to the fullness the life that you have given us where you have for us in one another something we each need that helps us to see you more clearly to see you more fully that helps us taste and experience the goodness of your glory and the goodness of your grace Lord help us not to despise or fear or look down upon the relationships that you have called us to but Lord help us with faith and confidence to enter into them learning to live the qualities of love qualities of patience and mercy and joy that you modeled for us and called us to and by your spirit made possible. Lord, we ask that you would do this for Jesus' good name's sake. Amen. 
You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.